Loving Father, we thank you that we can gather. We thank you that we fellowship with you uh, and with each other. Uh, We pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word. Uh, Show us the glory and wonder that is our King and Saviour, Jesus. Please apply this to our hearts by your spirit. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're uh, looking at your sermon outline, you'll see there uh, a poor photocopy image. Who does, uh, do you know who that is? Uh, some of you might say it looks like me. It's not. It's uh, Ricky Gervais. And he's a British comedian who's featured in uh, all sorts of Hollywood movies. And some people reckon he looks a bit like me, uh, which means that he's famous for his comedy as well as his good looks. Uh, In his new show, uh, he says, I'm just an ordinary guy going around talking to people, sort of like Jesus, but better. Well, I've actually turned up. So, uh, that is followed by the sound of raucous laughter. Uh, Gervais is a staunch atheist. And so if you asked him who is Jesus, he's actually said, well, as a child, Jesus was my imaginary babysitter, but not anymore. Uh, He's just a figment of our imagination. The question, who is Jesus, is the focus of this text. What follows is a picture of a king coming to a castle. And maybe the people's expectation is that the king will rule from the castle, such that people are singing, save us, save us. Here is the Messiah, the great Jewish hope, coming to revive the ancient glories of Israel. Here he comes to put Rome in its place. But Matthew keeps surprising his readers because this Messiah isn't quite what they expect. And we know what it's like when we hope and dream, but our expectations are not met, don't we? You know what it's like when you go to the... You, you, you spend the day out shopping, you come home, and all you want is a good cup of tea, right? And you go to the fridge, and the one thing you didn't buy was the milk, and your dreams are shattered. You know what that's like. Or you know, you know it's like when you buy something uh, and uh, you go to use it. It's, not, it's good, but it's not quite what you expected. Well, watch what Matthew does as he tweaks the expectations of his readers. Matthew 21, verse 1. I hope you can see it there. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Here is Jesus heading to Jerusalem, and notice this begins at the Mount of Olives. Um, I've told you before I've been there, haven't I? Yeah, I have. just want to make sure of that. Uh, good. It's, it's a wonderful place. Mount of Olives particularly, you get this spectacular view 
across the valley towards the old city, Jerusalem. And you can actually see the route that Jesus uh, followed from, these, from place to place. They're, they're visible. Even the gates that Jesus enters through are visible. They're bricked up, sure, but the architrave is still there. And well, the stone architrave, not the wooden one. Uh, you can see it. You can walk the path. Uh, and each of the Gospels contains the same kind of extraordinary detail we find here in this passage. And what does Matthew want us to know? What does he want us to know? Look at verse 4. The answer is right there in black and white. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And we know that prophet to be Zechariah. We heard the reading from Thea. Thanks for reading Thea. And what does the prophet Zechariah say? Verse 5. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here is Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And you might go, well, okay, Adam, there's no surprises there. That's what we thought. Our expectations are the same, and it all seems okay. Until you have a closer look at Zechariah 9, I wonder if you're able to compare the two. Let me read Zechariah 9. If you're a quick Bible flicker, go there real quick now. But Zechariah 9, this is what Thea read before. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you see the difference there? Rejoice, shout, uh, see. Uh, see what? See the king, righteous and glorious. But do you see that Matthew doesn't give you that picture? In Matthew, there is no rejoicing, there's no shouting, no Mexican wave for Matthew, right? Uh, there's, there's only looking. And what are those words that are also absent? The words righteous and victorious, a whole line. Well, that's unexpected. I didn't expect to find that. Uh, righteous and victorious are two words any Jew would be happy to associate with the Messiah. Uh, victory and rejoicing is what they want. But Matthew doesn't go there. It's very interesting. And notice what word Matthew added. He just slips in this word. You notice the word gentle. It's not there in Zechariah. It seems that the loud, happy, triumphant vibe of rejoicing from the Old Testament is traded for a meek, peace-loving, gentle Messiah here in Matthew. And that's really unexpected, I think. It's like Matthew's nuance, the picture here, to accommodate the message he wants to communicate. And for the original reader, any temptation of nationalistic ideas here is clearly tempered and restrained. If you're patriotic about the cause of Israel, Matthew is telling you just to take a breath. 
Just check your expectations for a moment. Before you rejoice and shout at God's righteous judgment, before you do the victory dance, because here is your Messiah, God's King that arrives without bringing violence. This Messiah doesn't bring violence. He doesn't bring the sword that Zechariah spoke of at the end of that reading. Instead, this Messiah, he'll be subjected to it. This kingship of this Messiah will be established by submitting and laying down to the humiliating violence of his enemies. It's not the other way around. He's going to go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be handed over to chief priests and to teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles to be flogged and crucified. That was a reading from last week, wasn't it? And the week before that, and the week before that. I mean, there's not going to be rejoicing. There's going to be lots of tears, though. Can you see the original reader with this gospel manuscript in his hand, reading it for the first time, looking for God's victory? Where is it? Looking for God's righteous judgment and victory on the enemy through the Messiah because he's arrived. But Matthew is showing me something else. Do you see the unexpected, the shock and the rethink going on here? And of course we know that this side of the cross for us, we know that come Good Friday, it will be the Son who bears the full measure of God's righteous judgment. The Messiah doesn't bring it. He actually receives it. He gets it. He cops it. The Messiah himself will fall under the righteous wrath of God. Can you imagine that? And this is what he's coming to Jerusalem to do. This Messiah will actually stand in the place of the unrighteous. He'll stand in your place and my place. Our sin will be his. Judgment that should rightly fall on us will fall on him. And this righteous victory of God will be meted out, not at the cost of the enemy, but at the cost of his one and only son. This Messiah will, instead of triumph, he'll become a loser. He'll become dead and defeated on a shameful cross. I wonder at this point, does Jesus surprise you? You might say, no, the story's so familiar. But don't miss what the original reader uh, would be, how he would be or they would be impacted. Of course, outside the gate, the crowd's expectations demand righteous victory. These things we've been talking about already. Have a look at it, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Uh, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, some people think uh, this scene echoes uh, Old Testament pictures like 2 Samuel 16. You can read about David coming into Jerusalem, having fought the enemies and he's got donkeys with him. Or Solomon, when he was coronated as king uh, for his enthronement, 1 Kings chapter 1, he's riding a mule. Or there's even a connection to Genesis 49.11, if you want to look that up. Uh, Israel's Old Testament kings are seen riding donkeys to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's not a big surprise. Even though preachers sometimes make it, look, he's on a donkey of all things. No, no, no. The Jewish reader would go, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds right. That's what Solomon did and, and David did. Uh, verse 7 is weird. How'd you go with verse 7? Uh, the wording there is much better than the uh, other version. Uh, the other version says that Jesus sat on them. How do you ride two donkeys at once? I don't know. I have no idea how you do two things at once like that. Maybe the foal isn't weaned so it can keep the mother calm. Uh, one thing for sure, it's a double act, two things at one time. It, that exceeds our expectations, maybe. Uh, I, I was thinking about a double act. I'm glad Jerry's here because I love telling this story. Uh, my most memorable double act for me was I was out shooting with my mates. And I got two kangaroos with one shot. That's not bad going, is it? I think that's pretty good. Uh, but I bet you didn't expect that this morning, did you? No. Anyway, I did ask the staff to resolve this dilemma for me, Jesus riding two beasts. And one staff replied, well, one thing is for sure, Jesus had two asses. You're all afraid to laugh at that one, I know. Uh, maybe that's why we never hear of Jesus riding an animal elsewhere in the Gospels. It's true that Jesus walked everywhere, and this was a short trip, really. He never needed a, a, a donkey before. But here is a deliberate planned gesture and acting out of something at Passover. This is a very provocative approach to a city. This city. Uh, it's saying very clearly that the time of concealment is over. That there's no more flying under the radar now. Consistent with Israel's kings previously, Jesus makes a huge confronting statement. And the statement is very simple. Zion, Jerusalem, see that your king... Your Messiah has come. Here is your Messiah. See in verse 8 how big the crowd is? It's huge. The use of cloaks is like a putting out of the red carpet. Palm branches, two are the same. It all means that there's a recognition that this is a royal thing. Uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a royal thing as well. It comes from Psalm 118. They would sing that at big festivals as they arrived at the temple being led by the king. Again, it's all about the king. Hosanna to the son of David definitely indicates they believe the Messiah has come. It means literally save us. 
And so the expectations are clear. And so this is very subversive if you're Roman. And it's subversive for a Jewish reader who hope for some kind of militaristic messiah to bring an anti-Roman insurrection. But the Old Testament imagery here of a king on a donkey deliberately subverts that thinking. It checks expectations as the meek, gentle messiah enters Jerusalem. It's not what they were hoping for. It's not what they were hoping for. Which begs the question, as we think about this, does Jesus ever conform to our expectations? Do we think Jesus is ever comfortable with the status quo, leaving people as they are unchanged? When does that ever happen in the Gospels? I see maybe the rich young man, but you don't want to be him. Or the Pharisees, and you don't want to be them. Here, Jesus is a massive pot stirrer. He is agitating. He is not conforming to anybody's expectations. He's not being taken for granted. He is clearly setting the terms, and he's announcing that he's the king. And so it is very subversive. Surprisingly so, the way this Jesus of the Gospels confronts our expectations and even challenges what might be our selfish sensibilities. He shows us we get things upside down. I mean, we get confused and bewildered with life when it doesn't turn out how we expect. When the Lord chooses things we'd never choose for ourselves, in our hurt, in our pain, in our pride and arrogance, we might be tempted to question his goodness and even doubt his love and forget who is king. But being friends with Jesus, knowing this Jesus never leaves anybody untouched or unchanged, and isn't that why our vision, our motto, motto to grow in Christ is so helpful? And so I wonder if that's even our prayer. Is it your prayer for yourself and for one another as you gather and have Bible study groups during the week or as you spend time in quiet reflection on your own? You're praying that you're growing in Christ. But growing in Christ, of course, strongly implies that you know this Christ. And so who is he? Who is he? Inside the walls of Jerusalem, the Judeans now, different crowd, now we're inside the walls in the city. The Judeans, they too have an opinion. Verse 10, where do we go? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, or it quaked, and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The whole city is quaking here. The last time the city quaked, it was when the Magi turned up in Matthew's Gospel. It seems that asking questions about Jesus causes trembling. And will there be more quakes after this one in Matthew's Gospel? Yeah, two more quakes. That's right. The question posed is the main issue. Who is this man? And I wonder, do you see the irony here? 
For all the pomp and ceremony outside of the walls, the Messiah enters Jerusalem. No sooner does he come through the gates and the Judeans are like, oh, look, this is Wally from the pub. Is it like that? Maybe, kind of. Who is this? Answer, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Certainly, if you're a local Judean, news of a prophet, a God-man from up north might be politically unsettling. They wouldn't have liked that. But it really is more than a Wally from the pub moment. He's called the prophet. Most believe that language points directly to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the prophet promised via Moses. They're saying he's somebody. And that prophet from Deuteronomy is a prophet who is like God himself. He's described as one who must be listened to. So who is Jesus? We see clearly this morning, he's the king who sets his own terms and doesn't live to conform to anybody's expectations. He won't be stage managed. Uh, he won't, none of that. He's not just any king. He's a gentle king riding on a donkey he's come to serve. Here is the Messiah, God's king, who's come to die in the place of undeserving sinners. And here is the prophet of God, the one who must be listened to. The prophet of God, the one who must be listened to. Here's the guy who's the complete package, isn't he? The complete package. And you might be at this point going, well, what does this matter? Why does this matter? And the answer, of course, is because in this scene, unmistakably, Jesus wants to be known. Jesus wants to be known. There's no imaginary babysitter here. Here is a true character from history that's not a figment of our imagination. Here is God's king come gentle and meekly to bring about God's righteous victory in a way that nobody else saw coming. It means that in Jesus, this side of the cross, now is the time of rejoicing and shouting because our Saviour King has come. Now is a time of joy and a time of listening to uh, the Son. It means that if we get Jesus wrong... There's no shouting or rejoicing, but instead weeping and gnashing. And so we know that knowing who Jesus is, is very important that there's a lot at stake. A lot at stake. What is at stake is membership in his kingdom. But this same Jesus, he's also come to us personally, hasn't he? Hasn't Jesus entered our hearts by his Holy Spirit? Isn't that the experience for the Christian that the great triumphal entry of Christ is the, is the day he took up residence in my heart? Isn't that what we declare? And you might be saying, oh, Adam, but I'm, I'm not a temple. I'm not old city Jerusalem. Uh, well, Ephesians chapter 2 is pretty clear. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about us, uh, that, that Christ is the chief cornerstone. That in Christ we're being built up together as the temple of God. With Christ the chief cornerstone. Christ has come to all of us. 
And here we are together, a lovely looking bunch, living together, doing life together, joined together, loving each other, gently and humbly as Christ our King first loved us. Is that right? People who love righteousness because Christ loved righteousness, he would die for it and God loved righteousness so much, he would send his son for it, that we would have it. And now he resides by his spirit in our hearts. Has Christ entered in? Such that there would be no question, no wondering about who you declare Jesus to be in your life. That's the question, isn't it? Who do we declare Jesus to be? No question regarding our pockets. Who do your pockets say Jesus is? Do we use our resources in such a way that it's all about people? And so the outsider goes, you know, there's no question who they declare Jesus to be. Or our tongue, how we use our tongue, the way we speak of others, all points to the kingship of Jesus. We're talking about the lordship of Jesus in our hearts. And I'm asking you about your pockets. And I'm asking you about your tongue. And I'm asking you about your time. Do you know who, do people know who you think Jesus is on account of how you spend your time? How you prioritise things? Your thoughts? Your dreams? What you dream about? What we fill our heads with? Is it this stuff? Is it these kingdom priorities where Christ rules? Are you thinking thoughts after God with a healthy prayer life, a healthy Bible reading life? Knowing the enormity of God's love for you that now shapes the way you love and accept others. There's no doubt about your commitment to one another and other believers. See, who do we say Jesus is? Do you love him? And does that love then shape the way you go out and love others? Where Jesus never leaves us unchanged or untouched. The invitation is to let him in. To trust Jesus completely in every way. And allow him to change us and transform us by his spirit that we be more like him, that we grow in Christ such that there is no question, there's no wondering about who we declare Jesus to be in your life. And so may we all seek to be growing in Christ. Amen.